Well, thanks, Ben, and good morning, everyone. It is uh, great to see you all here this morning. I hope you are warm uh, and yet not too cosy that you will now uh, kind of wander off into a little uh, sleep. It would be great for you to be able to keep your Bibles open and uh, to be listening to God as he speaks to us in his word this morning. There's so much in these passages from Ephesians and so much that is good for us that we need to hear. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we listen to him this morning. Our great and gracious God, we thank you that um, you have a plan for all time and for all eternity that involves us. And we thank you, Lord God, that uh, that plan has been revealed in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, you call us to be a part of that. And so as we look at your word today, help us to see how you continue to be at work bringing about your great plans for us in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I say, I think it would be right to say that there is nothing so hideous as war. And I think it would also be equally right to say that there is nothing so precious as peace. But peace is elusive, isn't it, in our self-centred world. As we've been reminded again once more this week and continue to be reminded by the horrific events that are going on in Palestine and Israel. Peace talks, peace summits peace accords, peace agreements. Some great work has been done at times to broker peace between warring parties. But so often that peace, which is sought after, remains elusive. Uh, The British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain uh, is best known for his policy of appeasement uh, towards Adolf Hitler. Uh, They signed a letter of agreement to solve their disputes peacefully. And Neville Chamberlain uh, came back to Britain and made his famous speech, Peace in Our Times. But less than a year later, uh, Hitler invaded Poland and World War II had begun. And the reality is that while our planet is inhabited by sinful human beings, there will be an absence of peace. However, I hope you uh, noticed already that today's passage speaks about a real and genuine and lasting peace that is available to everyone. No matter what race or gender or social status or government affiliation, no matter what time in history you live, no matter who you are or what you've done or how you've lived, God has made peace and is offering that peace to each one of us here. And peace is at the heart of God's eternal and cosmic plan for the entire universe. We saw that clearly uh, in Paul's summary verse right at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's grand plan for the fullness of time is, notice in verse 10, to unite all things in him, that is in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And then towards the end of chapter 1, in verse 19 and following of chapter 1, the way that God achieves his grand plan of peace and unity is by his great power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in glory, and where Jesus now rules over every other authority. And we've seen that this eternal plan is well underway. The Messiah that was to come has been raised and is seated at the right hand of God, and yet we don't yet see it fully, do we? Because we still see the lack of peace that is in our world. But in chapter 2, Paul shows us how God is bringing about his eternal plan of peace and unity. He shows us, if you like, God's way of peace. 
Now the section that we're dealing with today actually breaks up fairly neatly into three sections. Uh, you'll see them, uh, well you won't see them on the outline because I didn't get around to putting an outline on the screen, but you can see them in the passage, right? So uh, it's, we go from separation to inclusion, verses 11 to 13, from hostility to reconciliation, verses 14 to 18, and from foreigners to family. Verses 18 to 22. Now, verses 11 to 13 speak about separation and alienation. You know, I say, sadly, uh, an absence of peace leads to alienation. To be alienated means to be isolated, to be shut out or cut off. It involves or it can involve, at times, uh, anger or bitterness or lack of forgiveness Alienation is a, a terrible thing that we have to deal with, to be alienated from colleagues at work or from your family or from a group of peers at school, for example. See, the issue of alienation uh, occurs in two ways in the letter, in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul speaks of being alienated from the life of God which is exactly what we talked about in the first verses of chapter 2 last week, from verses 1 to 10. We were once dead in our sins and alienated from God. But here in the second half of chapter 2, human beings are depicted as being alienated from each other. In particular, Gentiles are described as alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now this, as you're aware, the, the Jew-Gentile division and hostility was a major feature of the Apostle Paul's day. Uh, we've already heard this morning that, uh, you know, there are Jews and then there is everyone else, the Gentiles. And so the Jews were God's chosen people, his chosen race. But they had twisted their privileged position. Uh, one commentator makes the point that until Jesus Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. They were the uncircumcised, a term of contempt towards the Gentiles, like calling them barbarians. The barrier between Jew and Gentile was absolute. So if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. And so Paul has just reminded his Gentile readers that they were once hostile to God. He now also reminds them that they were once foreigners to God's people, to the Jews. Now there was hostility between Jew and Gentile and he describes Gentiles as being far off in verse 13. Now in verse 12, uh, as you look at it there in, of chapter 2, he describes five ways, uh, five ways in which Gentiles were far off, separated from God and his people. So have a look at it. So you can see there in verse 12, they are separated from Christ. They are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel that is excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise that God had made with his people. They were without hope. They were without God. You might say they were Christless, stateless, promiseless, hopeless and godless. See, Paul describes them as being without hope because the state these people were in before becoming Christians was hopeless. To be separated from Christ is to be cut off from the only source of salvation. And so without Jesus, we would rightly face God's just punishment for our sin. 
We saw that again in the first part of chapter 2, didn't we? But because Jesus is the only means of having our sins forgiven and being in a right relationship with God. So without Jesus, Paul is saying they were in a hopeless state. In other words, they had no place amongst the people of God. You know, I remember when I was at Bible college being asked at one, one occasion to pray for a Muslim man in Pakistan who had converted to Christianity. And he had been brought before the law courts and he had been sentenced to death for his conversion. But there had been an international outcry and so instead of executing him, they stripped him of his citizenship. Now it doesn't sound that bad, but what it meant was he wasn't allowed to own any property. He wasn't allowed to have a bank account. He wasn't allowed to work at a job. He wasn't allowed to receive government support. He had nothing and could do nothing in his own country. His own family had abandoned him because of his conversion. And if it hadn't been for another Christian family risking their own livelihoods, he wouldn't have had a place to live or food to eat. And so to be excluded from belonging to the people of God meant that they would be strangers to all God's good promises and blessings towards his people. See, before receiving Jesus, these people, Paul says, were without hope and without God. And notice what Paul wants them to do in verses 11 and 12. He wants them to remember. Now, this is the, the first thing that Paul has actually asked them to do so far in this letter. Remember what you once were. Uh, don't forget the hopeless state that you were in before God through, uh, until Jesus saved you. Don't forget it. They were far off from God. They were far off from belonging to God's family. Religiously, they were opposed to the Jews and they were opposed, so they were opposed to one another. There was hostility between God's people and them. But now, see there's that word again. We saw a kind of that but word up in verse 4. But see verse 13? He says, this is what you were. Remember what you once were. Verse 13, but now in Christ, that is in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They were to remember that while they were once separated, they are now included. But more than that, more than just simply being included, they have also gone from hostility to reconciliation. Now we sometimes talk about the privileged and the underprivileged as being the haves and the have-nots. In Paul's day, the, the Jews were the haves and the Gentiles were the have-nots when it came to spiritual things. And just like the haves in every generation, just like they have a tendency to look down on the, their noses at the have-nots, well, the Jews made that an art form. They despised the Gentiles and vice versa. And to use the words of Paul in verse 14, there was a dividing wall of hostility uh, between them. Now, I don't have any props, but you can remember the kids' talk. Um, but it went further than just simply attitude. The Jewish temple actually had a wall, a physical wall, that divided the two groups. A Gentile man could not pass that wall and assume he'd lived to tell the story, and he knew it. Uh, the signs that the Jews had actually put on that wall outside made it very clear. But now, he's saying, Jesus has killed that hostility and he has brought reconciliation between Jew and Gentile through his own death. See verse 14? He says, for he himself, that is Jesus himself, 
is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And the law that God had given, remember, to uh, Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments, etc., had become a source of division. Uh, it was meant to attract the nations to Israel's God as they lived in obedience to it, uh, living by the law, would show the world the wisdom of Israel's God and be attractive. But while, and while it did require Israel to remain separate from the evil in the world, they were to stay apart from those things that were against God, the Jews further used it as a means of superiority and division. Only through the law could a person have a relationship with God, but now, through Jesus' death, the law is no longer the way to be a part of the family of God. For he himself, Paul says, is our peace. See, peace is not a treaty here. It's not an agreement that they come to. Peace here is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our peace. And I think the shocking thing here for the Jews is that they too, who once had the law and saw themselves as God's people, they too needed to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And that couldn't happen if they thought it was just about keeping the law. It could only happen through Jesus. Both Jew and Gentile reconciled into one new man. That is the church. All those things which meant division for Jews and Gentiles abolished. Peace is achieved because hostility has now been removed. You know, here is God's big plan to unite all things in Jesus being fulfilled. The Gentiles once were without God, without hope. They once were far away, but now, he says, they have been brought near. But now the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. But now there is peace where there was once hostility and division. But now God has made one new people of God. That is, they have gone from foreigners to family. And how has he done that? Very clearly in this passage, isn't it? Through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, there is peace between God and man. But not only that. He has also made peace between man and man, between woman and woman, between people. And here especially he's made peace between Jew and Gentile. See, all the things that meant division for Jews and Gentiles have been abolished. God has made one new man out of the two, thus making peace. See, we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens with Jewish Christians. Because we are both united to God and to each other through Christ. See, membership in God's household is open to everyone in exactly the same way and no other way. That is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. See, here, here is actually where our oneness or our unity, here is where it lies. It's in our common faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not in laws and regulations and rules and rituals and things we need to do. Our peace with God and each other and membership in a united household of God starts and finishes in what Jesus has done for us. 
See, God is building a united people of God joined by a common faith in Jesus. And so surely unity um, is a high on God's agenda for the church, his household, the body of Christ. Absolutely, it's a high on his agenda. But we must not miss the foundations that the church is being built on. See verse 19, the second part of verse 19. He says to them, But you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is the Jewish Christians, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation Christ is building his church on is the apostles and prophets with himself as the chief cornerstone. Now the prophets referred to here possibly mean uh, the New Testament prophets who preached the gospel in the era of the apostles. Or it may simply be referring to the apostles' message about Jesus that was foretold by the prophets. But either way, the point made here is that the true church of Christ is the one that is being built on the testimony of those men who were with Jesus when he was alive, including, of course, the Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. In other words, the truly united church is the one that is being built on the foundation that Jesus himself has set, the Apostle's teaching, and himself as the cornerstone. See, but they were the ones who were charged with the responsibility by Jesus himself to be witnesses to him, to go into all the world and make disciples and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. See, the church that is united is apostolic. And stands to reason then that a a church that shuns the teaching, uh, any teaching of the apostles, cannot be part of the household of God that is being built on their foundation. And so there's no reason to expect that we will or can be united in any real sense with a religious group that isn't founded on the apostles' teaching. That is how God is building his church. See, a church that claims that Christ is only one of the ways to God is not really the church. A church that claims that you must do something to be saved, even something to stay saved, is not really the church. A church that claims that only some of the scriptures are to be believed and obeyed is not really the church. A church that claims to have any other or additional authority over the church other than Jesus Christ himself in his word by his apostles is not really the church. And so to this day, the one true church is being built on the foundation of the apostles. But we're living in a time in history, aren't we, where the foundation, that foundation is under attack, where the apostles' teaching on Christ is under attack. See, under the influence of other world religions, many people say that Jesus Christ is not the only way to God. The Bible is sometimes under attack by liberal scholars. And the cause of the apostles is not helped by churches who fail to teach the Bible with any seriousness and by the lack of biblical knowledge of many Christian people. And as in every age, the apostles' teaching that we are saved by God's grace alone, through the death of Jesus alone, and received not by law, but by faith alone, apart from anything that we do, 
that message is still under attack by those who want to earn their right into God's favour. And so, of course, unity is crucial in the church, and we're going to be talking more about maintaining that unity in coming weeks. But the point is that we don't make the unity. Christ does. He himself is our peace. And he does it by building his church on the foundations of the apostles. There's no possibility of unity uh, when it's trying to be built on faulty foundations. But can I say, with that said, the key thing that we're actually being called on to do in this particular passage of the Bible is to remember and not forget. Remember the great intervention of God for us. He is our peace. Remember that though we were once far off from God, he has brought us near through the blood of Jesus that pays the penalty for our sins. And if you're here today and you don't yet know the, the great joy and privilege of being forgiven, of being welcomed into God's family, can I urge you to do that today? Speak to someone about it today. It is the best decision you will ever make with your life. But if you're already a Christian, remember that it's from the kindness of God that though you were once separated from him, you are now part of the family. You have full citizenship with all of God's people. And so don't forget the great privileges that you have in Christ as a full member of his household. Remember to be thankful. Remember to be welcoming ourselves as others join us in our family here at church. We ought to be the welcoming ones. How are you going at welcoming people in? How are you expressing that welcome to those who come along here? I heard a great story about a minister uh, who organised a special outing for his parish council, that is his church leadership body. Uh, he asked them to all dress up in their business suits. He was going to take them out to dinner and he took them all down to a, a local pub in a very working class suburb. Uh, and as they walked in and sat down, they all felt incredibly uncomfortable and out of place. Uh, people looked at them, but no one spoke to them. Uh, and the minister said that he had noticed that their church was not very good at welcoming newcomers and visitors. In fact, they had actually contributed to making visitors feel awkward. And so he wanted them to feel what that might be like. I hope that if you're visiting or new among us here today at Wild Street, that we have made you feel welcome, because you are. But if you're a, if you're a regular, are you coming to church with a, a mindset of welcoming people in as Christ has welcomed you in? Are you arriving early as most visitors do to be here and look out for newcomers who don't want to be left standing alone? Do you think about where you sit so as not to isolate yourself from others who come in? Do you avoid only sitting with or talking to people you already know? How are you helping others to fit in? to get to know you, to get to know God? What barriers do we unthinkingly put up that make people feel like they don't belong? And of course, we can't welcome and encourage each other if we don't even come. You know, being, a church, being a church ought to be the kind of non-negotiable in our weeks as God's people has welcomed us in, along with our growth groups. We can't very well love our church family that God has saved us into if we don't even turn up. And it's not always easy to get to church, is it? I mean, there are lots of distractions in our lives. But anything that is important, we will plan for. 
We will prioritise in our thinking. And remember that we, the church, are being built together by God's spirit into a dwelling place for God. We are God's temple. We are God's family. God lives among us. And so remember that if God has made peace with you, then he has made peace between us as well. See, God dwells among us and we are united to bring him glory in everything that we do. So don't allow there to be any petty divisions or annoyances among us. We're sinners. We'll mess up. But say sorry. Be eager to forgive one another. Don't allow bitterness a place in our hearts. Build one another up in love. Don't tear one another down in anger. It means we've got to watch how we speak about one another, doesn't it? It's not a little thing. It's not a little thing that we, the church, are here together. That God thinks it's important that we meet together. That our relationships with each other matter to God. See, the peace that Christ created for us is our rich relationship with God. But it is also something that we must put into practice in all of our relationships. Peace with God and with each other starts now, even in the midst of wars and rumours of wars. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are so kind towards us that though we were sinners, our backs turned to you, our hearts focused on your creature, your creatures, the things that you've made, rather than who you are as our creator. Father, we have sinned and we are sorry. But Father, we are so thankful for all that you've done for us, for your grace, your kindness, your mercy, that has made peace with us so that we can be members of your family. Father, help us to not only rejoice in the reality that we've been united with you, but Father, help us to rejoice in the fact that you have united us with one another, that you've made peace between us. And Father, help us to be those who pursue peace in all our relationships. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.